Just Metal episode 75. On this episode, I'm joined by uh, Rob, uh, who you've definitely heard before, and Finn Moore, who joined us briefly for um, the end of the decade roundup, but hasn't really had a proper show of us. Um, and in this episode, we're covering one of Finn's like all-time favourite bands. And for us, a band you've definitely heard of, This is we're going to be doing the entirety of Mastodon's discography, plus, like much like in our Agalock episode, every associated project we were able to like get hold of so we're going to be going through it same with the agalock episode completely chronologically with each of the four members various side projects or pre-band projects um yeah and it's been another mammoth um research session so yeah the first one we're, we're going to get into um probably not in too much depth but this is the first one we could find any sort of history of a band member being involved in this is the US death metal band Evisceration and their one and only demo, Fondling the Dead, which um, this is the first record I could find any of the Mastodon members being in the band. This was Brand Daler, the drummer's first project. So how do you get on with this one, Finn? Yeah, I thought it was quite good. It's uh, it's very straightforward. Yeah, obviously, the, the music that Brian would go on to make is a lot more weird and varied than this. But uh, yes, yeah, so I know he was 17 at the time, so his drums don't sound particularly like his signature style of drums yet. But it's, uh, yeah, it's all right. It's just very sort of straightforward, slightly slammy death metal. I say it's a bit like Infatuation with Levelance by Dying Fetus. That kind of like really low guttural, you know. Yeah, it's just like kind of nasty, like kind of straightforward, fairly nasty death metal. Like the weird thing is, like for people who've been listening to the series as I've done on death metal Forgotten Gems, for a death metal demo from 92, I don't actually really like this all this much. It's... <laughs> It's all right. Well, it's, okay. it's just a bit, it's a bit by the numbers, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess that can be put down to them probably all being really young at that point. And as Finn says, the really notable thing is, this is the only release I've ever heard Brandaler on where I can't tell it's Brandaler. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, normally his drums are the first thing you notice and probably the second and third thing you notice as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, Rob, have you got anything on this one? Um, I, I think just like reflecting back on what you guys were saying particularly about Bran is that it becomes such a signature of Mastodon's style like even as they evolve and go through so many stylistic changes it's one of the things that always stands out and adds a whole bunch of unique stuff in lots of different ways like to the extreme end of their sound it causes such a huge change in the energy and can really propel a bunch of riffs and it's really weird hearing Bran do like standard death metal drumming techniques like i find that a really weird thing to hear cool yeah yeah that that is that is actually quite a good point because it's not true of any of the other projects that he's in later despite the fact a standard death metal groove might have just fit but he yeah he never settles into that after this point okay so let's jump into the first like full length any of them were involved in we, then this one's got a bit more of a notable history to it this is the one and only album from Lethargy, It's Hard to Write with a Little Hand, which features the bass player of um, Evisceration along with Bran again, but they then team up with Bill... Uh, how, do you spell, how do you pronounce Bill's surname, Finn? I think, I think it's Kelleher. Kelleher. But there might be an American pronunciation that's a bit different than what we'd say. Okay, cool. Uh, we'll, we'll stick with that for us. It's the best guess I've got. <laughs> and um, guitarist and vocalist Eric Burke. And, yeah, put out this very interesting, like, intense, I guess, like, sort of death grind album. Like, how did you get on with this one, Rob? 
Um, so this isn't one of the ones I know a huge amount about, actually. I've only given these ones, like, a really small cursory listen um, when I was listening to the early, like, Mastodon demos and was like, it's really interesting to see where they come from. It wasn't at all what I was expecting their sound to have evolved out from. Like, as a band who, you know, like, from what they say and from the things that I've read about and listened to it, you know, thinking about combining something like High on Fire with, like, Thin Lizzy and Iron Maiden, hearing something that's, like, deaf and grindy feels really strange um it doesn't feel like the natural origin of where their sound came from but as soon as you've heard it you can hear the little bits of mastodony stuff that you then come across later like the particular way that they'll use like certain kinds of riffs and where you see the heavy riffs on albums like remission and leviathan you can hear the genesis of that here but it's not at all where i would have expected them to start from yeah yeah uh, how do you get on with it then yeah, no, I really enjoyed this one. I think that the closest thing I could compare it to, I mean, like Rob said, it's very different to what the normal stuff. The closest thing I could compare it to would be the, the middle eight section in Capillary and Crest. That kind of all out, everyone's just playing a bunch of crazy stuff. Uh, yeah, weirdly, I mean, I obviously quite famously really like uh, Mastodon's later stuff. But hearing Bill and Braun play something this technical and this crazy, maybe I just think, I kind of wish that the band would remember that they are capable of doing these fucking crazy bits as well. I see. Yeah, I, I was sold on this album straight from the intro. Where it's kind of all these. The music sounds a bit like from SpongeBob SquarePants. All this horrific screaming over the top. You just, you know, you're into a band who are very talented and also have a very good sense of humor about themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I should say there's a massive time jump with this album from the Fondling the Dead demo. So this is like 1996, and it's clear like the the two guys from Evisceration suddenly knew how to play. And this demo, as Finn said, I've got the exact same note of it. It sounds like someone just strung a load of bits like that Capillion Crest, like hyper tech freak out section together and just made a whole album out of that with Eric Burke adding some like really aggressive, like grind vocals over the top of it. Yeah, this is one of the ones I've really enjoyed out of this like sort of whole list we've gone through because it's so fucking intense. It's like 40 minutes of just non stop like gross offensive technical freak out i think also it's beginning of an interesting trend as well because there's a bit on the evisceration ep as well and this album and there's a heavy use of samples and that's something that actually carried on into mastodon's earlier work as well because the uh, i mean the call of the mastodon which is a, uh, obviously a compilation of their um early demos that has a lot of samples and their live shows used to be very sample heavy as well so it kind of shows that one or more of the members of the band were really into that kind of side of music as well yeah, and I think it shows like they're clearly taking their grounding from a grindcore perspective. Because before researching this, I didn't really know what genre the guys from Mastodon had come from. I think I'd always um, assumed hardcore, but it they actually seem to come from a far more kind of um, traditional grind influence thing. Hence, like the tons of of samples, as you say, like that amazing intro, which just descends into like ridiculous screaming. Uh, but yeah, overall, this is an incredible album, and the only thing I must hesitate about recommending it is, it's nigh on impossible to find now. Like, there's a YouTube rip of it, but it's not even the full album, it's missing like two songs. Um, and I couldn't find it anywhere for like a legal download, it's uh, legal, that is not illegal, uh, clearly never do anything like that. Um, <laughs> it, it's not on Spotify, it's not on any streaming sites, Um you can probably buy it for about £200 on Discogs. I mean, it's good, but, you know, I wouldn't say it's £200 good, in all honesty. No, no. <laughs> there, there is a collection I wish they'd reissue, actually. Someone, I can't remember what label it was, put out a double-disc collection of absolutely everything uh, Lethargy ever did. It's all 
like and that's up on youtube as well actually it's all the demos the the ep i believe that came before this but um yeah that's like you're just gonna have to listen to youtube for this one and that's one of the things i think that i'm when we will talk about this um, in the next episode but with medium rarities having come out recently it's a bit of a shame that some of this old forgotten stuff didn't make it on there you know that would have been a really nice opportunity to get a bit of a snapshot of throughout the band's history um and some of the stuff beforehand and really get like this huge amount of context for everything um i mean there's still great stuff on medium rarities but it was a bit of a missed opportunity not to include some of this stuff or in like a, a b-side i, I have a rant about this i'm saving for later Rob. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so so with that we should move on to like the next project which will start introducing other members of the band uh a brief thing to say there is another project around this time called gaylord who put out an album called sparkling cool same year as uh, lethargy but i couldn't find it for love nor money and yeah none of you guys had any luck either no luck at all yeah so that brings us on to the first first notable thing from uh from bass player Troy, and this is Social Infestation. I think we'll jump straight to their their first full length, skip over the debut EP, unless you've got any thoughts on it. No, just a very, very grindy. Well, actually, the, the, the first EP, I did have a quick note. It was the first um, and only release they had with um, Jennifer, who was their second vocalist. And I thought it was a real shame when they're... Uh, it's a real shame that she... I, I couldn't find the reason why, that she left and she wasn't on the... I mean, the other albums are great as well. But I think her voice added something really nicely contrasted with the other vocalist. I, I don't think I quite clocked there was another member on this. So yeah, Social Infestation were were a five-piece, then a four-piece, very traditional grind, like far more so than Lethargy. This is straight up, like, exactly what you expect from a grindcore album, like, or EP in the, the self-titled case of just like there's a vocalist who does the lows and then he does the highs all the songs are like under three minutes but it's really good grind it surprised me actually that troy this is a uh, troy's band because uh, you know his personality and mass i don't see him coming from this kind of musical background i thought he'd been much more from the sort of classic rock things so it's quite surprising to hear that he did something quite so so visceral and nasty uh, well when you look at like the future of what troy goes on to do like with the um, bands afterwards and having you know been part of Thin Lizzy uh, playing live with their exactly. new lineup it's like yeah this is absolutely not where I'd expect any of this to come from and and it's interesting thinking about that as one of the main influences which went into early Mastodon I think as well like can you can you actually hear his his bass playing in there at all or is it fairly no, I, I tried to hear it, but it's it's it's, a, it's the production of the genre as well, though, isn't it? It's never going to be something where you isolate every instrument and have everything nice and clear. It's always meant to be a bit yeah. chaotic and muddy. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I was going to say as well, with this one, like, there's not a great deal anyone else went on to do from this band. It, it's kind of like, essentially, um, yeah, Troy was the famous member of this one. I completely forgot to mention with Lethargy, Eric Burke is like nearly as successful. Well, in our our kind of circles, is nearly successful as the Mastodon guys. Like, he's got three of like his own grindcore bands past this. Has been in Brutal Truth among other things. Like, like he's he's gone on to have like a serious career. Kind of, I think he's got into like uh, Danny Liker's orbit and done a load of stuff with him. Whereas Social Infestation just felt like a. Um, yeah, felt like one of those projects where one guy went on to something else and everyone else sort of fizzled out after a few other projects. Yeah, I should say as well, when I'm talking about Social Infestation, the album I particularly looked into was uh, Redemption is Only Skin Deep, Time to Cut Deeper from 1998, 
which, although it's uh, sad they, they don't have that second vocalist with them, I felt was like a really impressive step up for this band. Like, it is really kind of um, well executed grind. Like, and the, the whole production of it, it, like, it sounds really meaty. Like, the guitar tone on it's fantastic. Yeah, and again, I think their third uh, release as well, I think they're one of those bands that literally each subsequent release, they just found what they were doing a little bit better and kind of honed in. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things you can see in it is you get that, like, that nasty, sludgy sort of guitar that Mastodon would, like, use, particularly on the earlier stuff, but just turn it to a completely different end. You can see how that evolution has taken place. Yeah, like, actually, now I know that Mastodon come from Grind, a lot of bits, particularly of like the Call of the Mastodon era, like the, the, the those two or three EPs around that point, um, makes so much more sense to me. Of like, okay, that's that's the the kind of genesis of it. But yeah, yeah, who knows how much of like uh, this project was like Troy's doing, and how much was the other guys? Like the vocalist, I think, uh, particularly stood out as really impressive to me on this. But he's been in a few other things, but not uh, not anything that really took off. Yeah, my, my favourite track from this album uh, is probably just uh, Suffer, because obviously in typical grind fashion, all the songs are two to two and a half minutes long, whereas Suffer is the only one that's four minutes long, but I think it's really nice that they give the music that little bit of space to breathe when they're doing it as well. It's cool. I, I do like it when grind bands throw in like, the one longer song where they do something a bit different just to vary up the album, because I think if they don't do that, they're best off going for like the you know earlier worm rock. Well, fuck it, it's just, just going to be 20 minutes long and then we're out. <laughs> This brings us to the the really legendary album from the pre-Mastodon years. This is Today is the Day in the Eyes of God, which is the fifth album by this band, so they've been going a long time. And it's one of these projects where the main guy, uh, Steve Austin, he does like guitar, vocals, and, and all the recording work for it. And I believe he does that on 
like most of their albums, if not all of them. I'm not familiar with a lot of the other ones in this band. And then he sort of has a revolving door rhythm section. So the album before this one, he had a different bass player and drummer. The album after this one, he had a different bass player and drummer again. Uh, but for this album, he picked up the two ex-Lethargy members, Brandaler and uh, Bill, Bill now on bass rather than guitar on this album, to put out this album of... I mean... Like on Wikipedia, they're down as like noise rock slash avant garde metal. Metal archives won't let them on because apparently they're not metal enough. Uh, but to my mind, this still felt like something that sat in the realm of grindcore more than anything else. I, it's hard to pigeonhole because they're a very band, but. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was just the production, but there's a slightly, I found, industrial element as well. Yeah, with, with the, like, sort of variance in vocals as well, with, like, the much harsher screaming ones, which, like, sound really inhumanly distorted, and then these, like, more ethereal, like, sitting across the mix clean ones. Like, it has a real industrial feel to it. Yeah, and I guess that's where the avant-garde tag comes from, that, that idea of, like, there's a bit of grind, there's a bit of industrial, there's some proper, like odd noise music stuff in there as well they're like long sections where nothing appears to be tied to a guitar or anything beyond like strange samples and distortion i think it's also worth looking that the drum sound on this album is absolutely brilliant the drums are so crisp and clear you can really hear every fill and, and the bass tone as well is great i basically think yeah um the, the rhythm section for this is absolutely fantastic I can see why Steve chose them to be part of it. It's where you start to hear the birth of, like, Brandela's legendary snare rolls. Like, because the snare is, like, so, so tight on this and comes through so, so clearly. Like, you really begin to hear that signature style of just adding, like, this blast on the snare drum into pretty much anything and somehow managing to make that work and using that to, like, ratchet up the intensity. You know, he starts to become this really distinct drummer at this point. And, and actually, what's worth mentioning as well with all this talk of relation to Grind, what really sets this album outside of Grind in the moments where the, the guitar and bass and the vocals all feel like that is Bran's performance. Because Bran will never... like From this point on, I can't think of a single example of him just play, playing a straight blast beat. Like I just don't think he ever does that. I think there's a couple of examples in the early Mastodon demos... But, like, other than that, like, this is when he just sort of eschews all of these old standard metal beats and just starts doing weird stuff. And I think you're Rob's spot on this. This really feels like where you're you're getting, like, oh, yeah, that's Mastodon's drummer. Like, despite the fact he isn't at this point in time, or I don't believe he's joined the band at that point. Um, not not to, like, kind of not call on Steve Austin's performance on this. I assume he wrote all of it because of his sort of position with the project, and it's like genuinely an excellent album. Like there is so much variation in its like forty minute runtime. That like, there's so many weird ideas. It goes all the way from sounding like something off of like Soul of the New Machine to moments that sound like almost acid bath influence. Like with like these kind of as Rob's mentioned, these like very creepy clean vocals. Yeah, yeah, I, I really love this album. What do you rate? Like, how do you rate it, Finn? Uh, yeah, so this is actually, so a lot of these albums, I, you know, I, I thought to research since we're doing the podcast, but this is an album I've actually been listening to for years, because I'd, I'd listened to it once on a whim while ago and thought, actually, the, this album is fucking great. So yeah, I've been hooked for a long time. <laughs> oh, that, that's really cool. How about yourself, Rob? Is this one you might revisit? Yeah, definitely. This is one I really liked, and it was so cool hearing 
Bron in a completely different context, you know, with someone completely different doing all of the writing and arranging and hearing him put his unique touches on that was something really, really cool. Um, and, you know, aside from the side projects that we might get onto later, this is probably like the most different thing we've ever heard Bron in and particularly hearing him in something as extreme as this and with so much variation, like that was really, really cool. And it it had an intensity to it that was like, really really engaging it has a very like despite the variation in it it actually has a consistent kind of energy of like it's all got that same level of like scary oppression to it i also want to point out there is a great joke in it of the final track is called there is no end yeah i know this yeah and you keep thinking it's gonna end and it keeps coming back in and starting again and then you look at the track and you think oh i see what they're doing there <laughs> <laughs> So the, the the album is twenty songs, most of which under like under two minutes. The final track is eight minutes, and like four times ends and then starts up a new track that sounds totally different to the last one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good good pun. <laughs> yeah, only downside to this album is the cover is terrible. It is, yeah, I thought that. It is the edgy 14-year-old sort of metal cover. Yeah, for a band on their fifth album, you're like, ah, oh, could you not have found a better artist? But then it might speak to like the point in time it came out, like 1999, this is when everyone's got a copy of Photoshop, like a very early version of it, and starts doing like shit in CGI. Part of it that really gets to me is like the shit CG blood in the background. Like, the face in the middle maybe could have been made into something cool with the right background, but the blood just looks so shit. It just looks like it's on, like, you know, just CGI red. It's really not intimidating. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those those issues as well where I only complained about the album cover because the album isn't, like, you know, spot on otherwise. it's it's It becomes egregious because everything else is so well executed. I think that brings us into the the birth of Mastodon themselves. Um, so yeah, that album we were talking about came out in 99 and this brings us up to 2000 where Mastodon form. They pick up um, guitarist Brent Hines. So this is Bill and uh, Bran leave, uh, leave Today is a Day. Troy, I, I think he's still in uh, social infestation at this point, but... Um, yeah, is sort of happy to do this on the side. And they team up with Brent Hines on guitar and vocalist very briefly. 
Eric Sanner. Which is after um, Bran and Bill uh, met Brent and I think Troy as well at a High on Fire show um, and then decided to form Mastodon together. Oh, well, that's so perfect. A load of grind musicians bonded over love of High on Fire yeah. and then mixed <laughs> the two genres. <laughs> and also, apparently, I've heard this story, uh, apparently Brent Hines turned up to the first rehearsal so drunk that he was falling out of the place, couldn't play a single note. Uh, but then thankfully he sort of said, please, please just let me come back tomorrow. Came back tomorrow and then fucking killed it. So. <laughs> I remember when I was like, just as an introduction to Brent, I was just getting into masses and I just got cracked the sky and I must have been like 14. I don't know. And uh, I read an interview in Metal Hammer with Brent where both he and the interviewer just took a bunch of drugs and they just left the interview in there and it just descended into completely meaningless drivel uh, because they both got too high to remember or record anything sensical and that was like oh shit maybe i should listen to this band fucking uh, that sounds like a ministry story yeah right? <laughs> Yeah, so so what's amazing about this actually? So I'd I'd never gone this far back in Mastodon's catalogue. That same year, they put out a nine-song demo that would form most of the two following EPs, uh, Slick Leg and Life's Blood. But we've, as we mentioned, that other vocalist Eric Sana, and this is I thought absolutely fucking brilliant. This demo is all up on YouTube. I imagine it's really expensive to get a physical copy of now, if even possible. But this demo is amazing because it's this bridge between, like, some of those ideas, like, if you've heard Remission, it's little bits of that sound, but kind of with way more of a death metal edge. And then this properly excellent death metal vocalist over the top of all of it. Eric does all the vocals on this, as far as I know. Yeah, and it's got it's got loads of these things which would become staples of Mastodon that you can hear, but mixed with other stuff as well. So it's got some of those like Mastodon leads that you'd then hear on things like Sleeping Giant way later. But you're like, oh shit, it's that sound. Um, but then it's got, like, as I said, this is the last time we see Bran ever do a blast beat. And going back and listening to that, I was like, what? You don't play stuff like this? And, you know, they've got these traditional, like, tremolo-picked death metal sections, which feels really weird when you slot it right next to what sounds like a riff off of Remission. But it's really cool to hear them with that much more death metal-y and, like, grindy edge in some of those parts. Yeah, so Finn, you're you're newer to this. Like, well, sorry, you're you're someone who I know is so much deeper into this band than, say, me or Rob are. How was it going back to this demo, hearing Mastodon sound this different? Yeah, it was very strange because all of these songs uh, I've now heard because I, I have the Call of the Mastodon CD where they took these songs, obviously read them. Uh, they all do the vocals themselves, so I was really thrown by hearing that because I didn't even realize this. Uh, the the Sorry, the songs with the old vocalists are actually out there to, to listen to. So it's very weird hearing Masson with it. Yeah, because the whole point is that they play the instruments and sing. And he has such a different voice. It's, uh, yeah, it's actually really good because it gives it a completely different flavour. Because the intensity that he has in his sort of death metal voice is something that none of the other members have. And it did really make me think. I wonder, you know, in the world where he didn't leave the band, I wonder what they would have developed into. Without question, they would not be as big if they'd stayed on this sound. This sound is way more... It's a very inventive death metal band, but it is a death metal band, whereas... I probably wouldn't argue anything that follows is. And as Finn says, it's still got that intensity, which, like, their voices aren't like that for the most part. Like, they have a kind of an edge of singing to even, like, the older, heavier stuff has that kind of slight, like, like hint of melody. Eric has none of that. It's just full, like, brutal. 
Um, I highly advise, if you like Mastodon, go look this one up. Um, no idea, as Finn says, if this was ever meant to actually be for the public. This might have just been to, like, ship them to labels and they never wanted this heard. I don't know. Um, yeah, I just think it's it's really interesting hearing, like, the transition between the nine-song demo to Slick Leg and Lifeblood as you hear them begin to bring in the what would become a signature of Mastodon, which is the variety of vocalists and different vocal styles, which they continue to develop. Because, like, uh, as you guys were saying, like, there's not that ferocity. Like, there's no really gutturalness to a lot of Mastodon's vocals. You get bellows from Troy and stuff like that, but it doesn't have that guttural edge that the death metal does. So listening to this back-to-back with Slick Leg and Lifeblood was really, really interesting of hearing the difference that their vocal style makes to it and how it completely reframes, you know, the same songs. Yeah, especially the main difference being that Eric uh, Eric Sarna is a confident death metal vocalist where, you know, he knows exactly what technique he's using to serve the kind of brutality of the uh, the bits he's doing whereas all the other members have all famous and i think to this day still say they're not willing vocalists they just you know basically did vocals because no one else was there so you need even like you know going up to leviathan and stuff their their vocal technique i think it's them trying to do harsh vocals and go oh well, that's probably what suits the music because they're more focused on the instrumentation which is very weird hearing Masson with a vocalist who i guess you get a bit of this when scott kelly comes in as well a vocalist who's just there just to focus on the vocals and make them sound really nasty so immediately afterwards uh, they put out the 2001 demo and uh troy bill and brent all take up vocals um this demo is probably not worth mentioning because it's more or less just a shit version of some of the songs that would appear on the follow-ups the the slick leg ep and um life's blood which will come out like uh yeah which both come out in 2001 so this band like these guys clearly had put their their all into this project Uh, like so they'd got like they they've gone through a series of recordings in in the space of a year and it's it's like an album's worth of material easily so finn how do you get on with these sort of like pre-remission eps yeah, so so to me, um, I, I know Slick Leg, sorry, Slick Leg and Lifeblood are separated, but I've got Call of the Mass on, so I hear it as kind of one complete album. Uh, yes, I, I like it. I think it's, uh, I, I appreciate they're still doing something a bit different. Uh, I guess it's maybe more in that kind of lethargy way where things are a bit more open-ended and less focused. Uh, I, I do think it just does sound a bit like an unpolished kind of remission demo, though, or that two of them do. I get what they're going for, but it, doesn't, it feels like they're still kind of throwing ideas at the wall as opposed to sticking with something. I think one of the really interesting things that comes across when you listen to it is you'll hear a riff where like, oh shit, yeah, that's a Mastodon remission style riff. Like that could fit somewhere on remission. And then next to it, there'll be this like sort of sludgy stoner riff where you're like, that feels kind of generic. Um, which makes me think that like, hold on, like when you listen to remission or something, there's no generic riffs on it. Um, And it's like Macedon sort of weeded out some of that extra stuff and then really focused in on this completely unique sound that they had. But you can still hear a bit of that on these EPs, which they then just trim off for the album. The other thing um, that that I think really stuck out to me is there's passages on this, and this doesn't really appear on the album, where they play around with some real like dissonant ideas, like stuff that sounds very like very kind of gnarly like that's completely gone by remission there's only there's only about like three or four minutes between the the two albums of this but there are these passages that just sound like like they they would have been good in another band and they could have gone somewhere else with this but they decided to um like uh, i mean it's i mean it's in the nicest possible way but they did decide to follow a kind of more commercial path like 
they kind of trimmed off some of those really horrible edges. The only thing is, uh, is it kind of an Easter egg. It's kind of interesting that they uh, reference Life's Blood uh, in remission, I think, in the track Trapped Under Hoof. The chorus is them just screaming Life's Blood, which looks, oh, it's nice to say they've moved from one place to another. Yeah, and I think one of the other things, like just like those really dissonant ideas that you hear, there's a massive like intensity and speed on this that you won't really ever see again from Mastodon. Like, you'll see moments of it in some of these supremely technical sections you get later on, but you'll never get quite the, like, you know, like sort of blast beat style riffs that you come across in here. Like you won't quite get that sort of feeling. That will also be like sort of pushed to the side in favor of like these, like particularly on remission, still really heavy, but very different style of riffs. And listening to this just made me think that, wow, Mastodon write really unique riffs. Because when you hear them next to normal riffs, you're like, hold on, that's a massive change that just happened there. Two's remission, the debut album from this band, and something an album I imagine most of you are familiar with, but possibly possibly it's one that's too far back in their their kind of timeline. So with this episode, we're obviously going kind of surface level and all of this because we want to cover a lot of ground. It's almost certainly going to be a two-parter. Um so we won't dive too much into like the history of the band or anything like that. It's it's more an appraisal of the sound, but yeah. We, we've got a four-album run here, which we will try and not get too carried away. But, um, yeah, to kick things off, Finn, what are your thoughts on Remission? And what's your kind of history of this album? Because you're the Mastodon superfan. When did you come to this one? So Remission, I think, is absolutely brilliant. I know we, we've discussed uh, Life's Blood and Slickling, but this is the first time, if you go through their stuff chronologically, I think they really... It's fitting for a debut album. It's the first time that I think they really sound like Mastodon. Uh, yeah, so I, I first heard Mastodon because I heard, uh, in fact, I think I was with you, Rob. I bought a copy of Crack the Sky. I listened to it, I thought this was absolutely great. And then another friend of mine said, oh, but were you aware that they used to be much heavier than this? 
Uh, so then I actually went out and then listened to Remission. And it completely blew my mind because going from an album opener like Oblivion to then hearing, which actually is still my favourite song on the album, Crusher Destroyer. Just opening with the sound of the, I think it's, they sample the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. It is. Then, which is weird because obviously Mastodon are very famously uh, known for their sort of very weird time signatures and fiddly riffs. But the opening riff of Crusher Destroyer is incredibly straightforward, but incredibly good. It just really sets the scene. And then also immediately for a song that's only, I think, two minutes long, uh, Bron, he just immediately shows his uh, intent for the drums he's going to bring to the band. Where he's just drumming, he's drumming in and out of the bars and changing the signatures. He's, yeah, I think he really, he, it, this is Bron's uh, album, I think. I, I, I fucking love that they start it off with the T-Rex roar from Jurassic Park. Um, one of the things I've always loved about Mastodon is they've got like so many sort of evocative um, song titles and such a focus on like weird, massive and prehistoric and fictional monsters. You know, we've got Crusher Destroyer, which is like a two minute pounder about a T-Rex. Um, things like Where Strides the Behemoth and Old Nessie. Um, and yeah, going back to this again and remembering like, damn, Mastodon sounded really raw and aggressive and like the sound of the snare drum on this album is like thunderous. Like it really just smashes into you. Um, and as Finn was saying, like, yeah, Bran makes an amazing showing of himself and when you compare it to some of the stuff you hear later like Bron's still a fantastic drummer but you didn't have the immediacy that he displays on this and where like a riff that otherwise would just be pretty cool is propelled into being something that just bludgeons you to death because it's just got these snare drum rolls out of nowhere um it was really really sort of it's really cool to go back and listen to this again. But it, it's still got these slow moments as well, like on Trilobite, on Where Strides the Behemoth, where you see these like huge sonic pictures that Mastodon will go on to create more and more throughout their career. So I think the way they meld that intensity with that sort of massive conceptual framework that they create through their songs is really cool. It's interesting. So I'm, I'm a bit older than Robin Finn. They're both about the same age, about five years younger than me. So I think you both got into Mastodon around Crack the Sky, right? I, I got into them just before Once More Around the Sun came out. Actually. Wow, okay. So I got into them um, like about two years after Leviathan came out. So, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So like possibly a bit before that, maybe, maybe a year after Leviathan came out, like a bit before they did Blood Mountain. So I got really into Leviathan and then went back to Remission. And my first appraisal of Remission was like, oh, it's a bit much for me. Like, because it starts <laughs> with Crush and Destroyer and it's like so intense. I was like, oh, fuck, I don't know what to do with this. And I don't I don't know if I, I stuck it out to the bit in March of the Fire Ants where the amazing like, harmony guitar solo comes in. And it's just like, after like four, I, at that point in the album, it's like six minutes of like intense and then just beautiful melody out of nowhere and i think that's the thing that signals the big difference between the debut eps and what they're going to do of like they were suddenly playing around with some really melodic ideas like that harmony kind of solo lead thing is just pure like joy and then then you get moments like say the start of old nessie which is this kind of slow building atmospheric section is it intentionally reused in Hearts Alive? I didn't know that the melody was the same. It's near enough the same mes- melody as a passage in Hearts Alive. There's a, it's not identical, but it is so fucking similar. I missed that completely. Um, but I think it's so. It's interesting. This run of four albums, they are based around the four classical elements, and Remission, fittingly, is fire because it's just like 
it's unrivaled in how much it like attacks you but i think you're right like there's a lot of groove in this as well which again will be something that mastodon like does really really well and march of the fire ants is a great example of that like there's these really cool groovy sections uh which you know make you think a little bit of some parts of neurosis or melvin's which was another like big inspiration for uh, mastodon and then there's those amazing guitar leads which make you think of the other things they've talked about with thin lizzy and iron maiden and some of that like classic metal and you can feel all these influences coming together but they feel really distinct you could never really point to a bit and say oh that's definitely like an iron maiden thing they're doing there it feels like it's had this time to gestate and form into something like that has elements of all these things but is fully different in how it presents the the other thing as well worth mentioning about this is we get the first paul Mara- uh paul romano is it romano uh i don't know if i'm remembering it wrong album cover for the band um that incredible picture of this like horse being sort of ripped apart by this strange like purple flame slash blood thing i don't know quite i don't know quite what it's picturing but it's a very striking image Oh, so yeah, the uh, thing about the element being uh, fire is, I think, because uh, obviously of the first four albums, uh, which was interesting, you know, the four that Paul Romano does do the covers for, uh, it's the only one that doesn't have a concept, because the other ones all have a story going through them. But I think it's quite fitting that this one, the the you know vague concept is fire, because it also sounds very prehistoric and sounds very sort of primitive and, you know, like you're wandering through a, like a prehistoric land and there is a cavemen beating each other with clubs and such. Yeah, and the, and the productions like that as well, particularly when you compare it to later albums, it feels so much more raw and fuzzy and, like, unkempt compared to all the stuff that comes afterwards. It's also worth noting, there is a remaster of it, but uh, the remaster, I think, is dreadful, and I'm not sure why it was remastered. Oh, God, I've not heard that. No, I'm, I'm going to ignore that, because this sounds good. Like, it, it didn't need... It's, it's, it's it didn't rougher need to be. than they would be... On later album, like, the the change in production between this and the next album is huge, but there is nothing really wrong with this sound. Like it's all clear still. Something uh, Finn touched on earlier actually was the lack of it being a concept album, and I think there is a song that really stat like actually a couple of titles that really stand out on that of like train wreck and mother punchy. Or like when I first came across this, I was like, what the fuck are songs like that doing on a Mastodon album? Or songs with those titles, they. That, that's not epic, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, going. Yeah, it's not grandiose. It's mother puncher. <laughs> going from train wreck to like trampled under hoof, which is like, oh man, that feels like a fucking Mastodon song. Like as soon as you hear it, you're like, yeah, that's got to be Mastodon. Um, but the other thing I really like, and this will be like a staple that we'll see Bran do as we go on, is he does this really nice thing with um, these syncopated snare hits where he'll hit on the offbeat as you're going up to like a big moment or as it's like coming down from something huge. And it just gives it this really weird intensity to it where it's like slightly off-putting because you're getting this big stab where you shouldn't be getting a stab. And I, I just one, yeah, it was just one of those techniques that really stood out that he does the most on remission but is still something that he does a lot throughout the rest of the catalogue
I should say at this point in time, like as you'll probably know with Mastodon going forward, there's a hell of a lot of side projects and other stuff going on. It seems at this stage like um, Troy's long left uh, social infestation. There are no side projects to note from this period, so we get kind of this uninterrupted run. So two years later, in 2004, we get their like ridiculously legendary landmark album, which I'd be amazed if anyone listening to this hasn't at least given a cursory listen to. This is their second album, Leviathan, and this is the album that like just exploded for the band. I think it was like Metal Hammer's album of the year for that year. Like this, th- these guys went. It was Kerrang's as well, apparently. And Kerrang, bloody hell! So yeah, Fucking for American hell. listeners, like. <laughs> Kerrang! magazine is the kind of like social trend chasing one like they're the kind of like at this point in time like they would have just gone from having like corn and slipknot on the front covers of the magazine so for mastodon to jump to like yeah that's like the stratospheric jump for a band this heavy um yeah rob when did you first come across this album then so this was, um, I think. So I think the first Mastodon songs I ever heard were off this. I think the first one I ever heard was Iron Tusk, um, and then followed by Blood and Thunder. Which, like, if you haven't heard Blood and Thunder, wow, you've really been staying isolated from society. Your life's probably quite nice. Um, but like, I got Crack the Sky first, and then went back to Leviathan. Um, and again, one of the things that attracted me to it is like the ideas behind it. So it obviously is around, based around Herman Merville's um, Moby Dick, um, but it's got a whole bunch of other like nautical themed ideas in it. It's got Sea Beast, it's got Megalodon, um, and it's it comparing it to Crack the Sky, which is where I came from. Is it's it's much more aggressive, but it's just as big in a sense in its scope. Like with these huge epics like Hearts Alive. It's just as huge um, in the story that it wants to tell you. And it has just as many, not quite as much, but lots of variation in it as well. If you think about like the beginning of Sea Beast, which is like sort of slow and creepy with these weird leads, which then becomes quite sludgy. And then at the end, like actually gets really heavy. And then it's got these like thrashy bits like um, Blood and Thunder. So like it's a really diverse album. And it's also like really restrained compared to Remission, which is about 51 minutes. This clocks in at about 46. So it's actually really short and and really tight and just there's no wasted space on this album this was my first experience of the band my first experience of mastodon was looking up on youtube and watching the insanely creepy video for uh, blood and thunder um you two must have seen that at some point right yeah <laughs> oh with all the clowns and the feathers yeah yeah <laughs> fucking weird stuff but i like i could get past the all the clowns to uh, <laughs> to get to just the amazing riffs on display there and yeah i sort of it was an album i was instantly into it, it sort of you know you get that as a lead single and you just progress through all the songs and it, as rob says it's got like a perfect flow it's this really condensed tight album because they've gone from being a band who were doing a lot of different ideas with some connecting themes to doing a full concept this album has this really amazing unified feel. They, and I don't know how much this is like suggestion after the fact, but it does really have that feel of being at sea throughout. Tracks like uh, like Sea Beast or Aqua Dementia have a very watery feel to them, and I don't, un- I don't understand how that's the case, or I can, I couldn't write a riff that that made me feel that way. But this album does 
conjure those images in my head throughout. Yeah, so obviously, uh, of, of the four elements, this one's uh, obviously uh, based on water. It's interesting you were just saying about how uh, watery it does feel, because I, I read a comment from someone on Reddit where they're saying um, uh, their partner suffered from really bad seasickness and literally couldn't listen to the beginning of Hearts Alive without feeling really sick. I thought, it's amazing, how do you, like, in music, how do you convey that feeling? It's, it's you know, incredibly Hearts well Hearts Alive totally does that, like, because, you know, it's this massive 13-minute thing. Like, there's bits of it that give you that feeling of, like, being lost deep out at sea and just like having nothing in sight and but, but then also thinking about water and how water is fluid and can change and can be like calm and peaceful but then rough and violent this album does that as well just like remission embodies fire with like an an inability to really commit to a theme and jumping and chopping and changing like leviathan flows between ideas and does it in a really like natural way um, but can but can still switch from something quite calm like the beginning of Sea Beast to something like Blood and Thunder, like without you really noticing that there's been this huge change. Also, it's the first time that you start hearing um, clean vocals from Mastodon as well. Because obviously, remission, it, all of it is just grunts. There is a Sea Be- I think it's Sea Beast and Naked Burn. So Brent starts bringing his clean vocals out as well. And it's all sh- it, it slightly hints at the direction they take in future releases. Yeah, I was going to say the vocals on this definitely start playing with some different textures, like. like- increased inclusion of melody um and actually all four of them are credited with vocals on this but we don't get any of the what what we'd hear in later albums of bronze vocals i think he must just be doing additional screams or something like that the, the interesting synergy with this album the last we have the instrumental outro joseph merrick and the final track of remission was uh, the elephant man and then the third uh, the final track on blood mountain called pendulous skin is apparently the third in the elephant man trilogy so all three albums kind of have the last song about him as like a kind of buy-through between the three releases. Oh, amazing. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, so on top of this being like a really solidly played, like a super inventive album as well. Like it, this, nothing sounded like this at the time. Like I think Mastodon for many years, like possibly less so now, but for many years they were a band like I couldn't begrudge their success because they had certainly stumbled into a sound that was very unique to them like yes it clearly borrows from the melvins in places it clearly borrows from some of their sort of grind years but i can't think of another band at this point in time mixing that amount of melody with so many like odd technical moments and the progressive while still being like really mainstream accessible it's it's kind of mad if you look at a song like Iron Tusk, where like it's got this like groove metal sort of riff that starts it off that's really cool, and then leads with this like really cool lead guitar passage, which sounds like something from Thin Lizzy, but still manages to keep it within this realm of what's kind of like a groove metal song, and and yet somehow it all still fits together. Uh, it's really weird that they managed to make that work, but in doing so, they just didn't sound like anyone else. And I can't, to this day, I can't really think of a band who's managed to do this kind of sound with the variance of the vocals as well, because they had, you know, so many members to pull upon for that. Also, I, I'd keep myself, I didn't praise the, um, I think it's in Megalodon, where it starts off, you know, all sort of quite cool. Uh, and then halfway through, it suddenly cuts this bizarre kind of surf billy lick and cuts straight from that into a thrash metal riff. It's just, but, it, but it doesn't seem like a band fucking around. It seems very purposeful, even though it's knowingly quite silly. Also on this, we get a seal of approval from a couple of, like, scene luminaries with um, guest vocals from 
Scott Kelly of Neurosis on um, on track A and uh, Neil Fallon on the on the single of the album doing the the big closing split your lungs and blood and thunder sort of verse of of that track. Yeah, so like they got people from Neurosis and Clutch involved, so you can see like they were starting to get I don't know attention from some very interesting bands. Also, uh, the beginning of their their love affair with Scott Kelly, because from this point onwards, he's on every single one of their albums. Yeah, do you know the history of that relationship? Uh, no, so apparently, um, uh, I'm not sure if it was Mastodon or one of the other bands that Brian was in toured with Neurosis, and they just became good friends. And apparently it was, uh, uh, reportedly, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but apparently it was um, Scott Kelly who said, Mastodon, yeah, that's a good name, you should go with that one. <laughs> oh, wow, that's... <laughs> If apocryphal, it's still a great story. Yeah, and and I think particularly now we look, you know look back on it like Scott Kelly's intensity that he brings to Mastodon songs is is amazing, and it it really adds to you know as they develop throughout their career and they add more and more vocal textures, like having that omnipresent like like power that Scott Kelly has that few other vocalists can match. It, it it's a really interesting highlight of a lot of the albums where you just get to like, oh, right, and it's this bit. Like, you know, when we get onto Blood Mountain, it's like Crystal Skull, and you just have these huge moments that Mastodon are able to create, like with the addition of this vocalist. And then Neil Fallon as well, doing what is probably one of the most iconic, like, metal vocal parts for the past, like, 10 or 20 years. Like, you know, everyone knows this section. It's got so much power. Um, and they use it really judiciously, like, with Scott Kelly just being on one song. Like, you could easily have Mastodon fronted by Scott Kelly. And if you watch the, like, Live in the Cape it, it works amazingly. But they're quite restrained with it. You know, they don't bring in tons of guests and they don't make their... The sound doesn't become too dilute and too confusing. It's still clearly Mastodon, but it just has this bit of an edge to it, which is the Scott Kelly part. So something we we would be remiss to not mention is the album cover is one of the all-time greats of of metal. Absolutely. Like, I, obviously, Mastodon are a band who clearly at this point in time, the their sort of massive rise to popularity, they do have access to great artists. They do have access to incredible studio staff. Like uh, Matt Bales does an incredible job of the sound on this album. But... The thing is, there's plenty of bands with that kind of access who fuck this stuff up. And the the cover that <laughs> Paul Romano did for this, like, the CD cover doesn't even tell half the story. The the extended full cover you get on the vinyl is just mind-blowing. Yeah, it's got so much colour, it's one of those things. It's so vivid. You know, there's so many... And there's so many great album covers, metal in particular, that are like quite muted you know there's a lot of blacks and it's really dark and it's evil but this is so colorful there's so many reds and blues like and and the you know the startling white whale itself it's so iconic and you know this starts that thing of Mastodon having these expanded album covers which are as mind-blowing as the music itself but there's amazing um there's amazing little nods in it like um I'm going to read this straight out of Wikipedia because I'm not that smart to have known this otherwise. The wave seen in the full picture of the artwork is a reflection of Hukusawi's The Great Wave of Kangagawa, uh, which is like a really famous old painting. Like, uh, it's like, yeah, there's all these like clever little things added in that that full version of the cover has so much 
extra stuff going on. It, yeah, it's just... It's utterly spectacular. I love it when bands put this kind of work in. Like, a Mastodon and a band have had good booklets as well. Like, And this, this for me, is the real start of that. Where it's like, that remission cover is very cool and striking. But it's not the thing that the next three covers would have where there's bits in the corner that are really exciting as well as the core central image in this case of of that massive like ornately detailed white whale uh coming up under a ship absolutely i guess because obviously uh, when he did remission uh paul romano you know he was just uh doing a, an album cover for a band whereas this time around he'd already worked with them before so i think just like the band he kind of thought oh cool well now i've got a better idea of what they're about he also allowed himself to grow with the art he was going for to reflect their music so and you can see why they stuck with him for, for the next two albums as well, because that working relationship seems fantastic. It, I mean, it's so rare that you get music that is so fantastic, and the album cover, while being great in its own right, also perfectly reflects what it's going to sound like. So I think the last thing to really discuss on this is the second-to-last track, which I think is one you kind of have to mention because it is such a kind of centre point of the album. This is the 14-minute epic Hearts Alive. So after, like, a really condensed... So it's only, like... It's under half an hour the this or the rest of the album that you just get this huge like kind of monumental evolving progressive metal piece like the previous album and like anything they'd been involved with before this had never crossed about the six minute mark they they'd never played around with structures like this but then to produce a massive song that just flows perfectly and its entire runtime feels justified like, it's clear these guys had incredible progressive metal chops as well. Yeah, and I think that's a, it's fantastic because obviously the, the last song, Joseph Merrick, feels more like an epilogue and this is the true sort of finale of the album. And it's great because, like I said, the whole album is full of these kind of weird uh, structures and riffs and everything and then they just kind of filter it all out and it just ends on this one fairly straightforward riff for two straight minutes. It's just, it's so fucking fantastic and it really feels very climactic and final. Yeah, when you get to that gigantic riff, uh, but then because they're like, as musicians they're so fantastic particularly brian you know they play around the riff in the way that like great prog does where it adds all of these like little extra elements to it which is amazing to listen to and like having the bit of the album before that come in at less than half an hour and then with this big 14 minute closer like it's so perfectly paced as an album as well to end with this and then as you say having the small epilogue at the end like it's just Everything happens at exactly the right time on an album level as well as the song level.
should say as well, guys, jump in if I skip anything because there is a shit ton of things that come out between this because they're a very big band. Um, I'm not sure a lot of them ever had much to do with the band themselves. Like, there's there's plenty of singles and splits. Something actually I do want to comment on that's quite interesting is between Remission and Leviathan, there is three split albums. Um, one with American Heritage, who I don't know. Um, one with High on Fire, which is amazing because they're like the band they formed around, apparently. And one with Dillinger Escape Plan. And this, this says something about the massive meteoric rise to success they had after Leviathan. The next split that comes out in 2005 is with Avenged Sevenfold. <laughs> I, I didn't know that they'd done a split with Avenged Sevenfold. <laughs> so I assume, like with these splits, I don't think they're like that grind thing where it's like, oh, we both recorded like five minutes of music. Let's put this stuff out. I think this is, we've literally just taken a song off the album each and we're going to chuck this free in a magazine somewhere. Wow, God, yeah, yeah, it shows what the leagues that they start operating in. Yeah, I mean, he's put out on uh, Warner Brothers Music or Warner Brothers Records, so it's like, like these guys are really big at this point. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this takes me back to like being in secondary school and you know being into metal, and then a whole bunch of people would be like, "Oh, are you into Avenged Sevenfold?" And I'd be like, "No," um, but like having them on the same track as Mastodon, so they did oh, it was Beast and the Harlot and Backcountry with Blood and Thunder and Iron Tusk, which seems so heavily contrasting. I don't really get who's who's who the target audience is for that. I, I assume the logic is just like we're just going to put the best singles of both bands on. Hopefully, people get one of them. Like they've probably heard of both bands. Yeah. But yeah, I remember 2005 Avenged Sevenfold being a really big deal and something like I was just not able to crack. The only other thing I think worth mentioning, which is from a little while back, is in 2003, there's the March of the Fire Ants EP, which is March of the Fire Ants, but it also comes with a cover of Thin Lizzy's Emerald, which is one of my favourite Thin Lizzy songs. And this is one of the first times you see, like, Brent taking a full-on lead in the vocals. Um, and I actually think he does a pretty good job, like, for this early in his yeah, career. Yeah. Like, really solid. And they get the Thin Lizzy sound down incredibly well. Um, so... It's really interesting seeing at that stage, like where they were in terms of their influences and how their vocals are developed. And Brent's like really sort of, you know, kind of Southern American twang that he has on those clean vocals. Yes, that brings us on to um, to 2006's Blood Mountain, which for me was an interesting one because I'd already, you know, spent a year with the band, got really deep into Leviathan and uh like not so much into remission at that point in time but it was this thing that came with a lot of weight it was an album that i was expecting a huge amount from and what i loved about it because i i I didn't hear any of the singles ahead of time i heard the whole thing fresh and it was that brilliant thing of being um being kind of confronted with an album where a band has changed its sound they they are doing something decidedly different but it's obviously still really good. And the thing I'd say with the grab me straight away about Blood Mountain versus Leviathan is they seem to have taken on a lot of that progressive influence that was starting to tinge Leviathan. And that was the core of this album. Like, although the songs are all short, there's nothing really like a lot of them are only about three minutes long. They they all seem to each grab a unique odd idea and explore that in a, in a certain way 
it's still got a kind of coherent flow, but it's it's not that like contained perfect piece that Leviathan is. This is Macedon exploring a lot of weird ideas with a kind of overarching framework. It's really interesting. Like there's there's loads of sort of the psychedelic bits that you start to see with Macedon on this, like thinking about something like This Mortal Soil later on the album that starts off with these really chilled out like psychedelic guitars and then these vocals that like the first lyric of the song like seem to float slightly above like the mix and are just sort of hovering there. And the development of those clean vocals to get across those different like sounds and techniques to sound much more ethereal than leviathan that like even in its softest moments didn't sound sort of psychedelic and transcendental like bits of blood mountain do but i think phil you're definitely right in that this feels in a way much more like a grab bag of interesting ideas like it's less cohesive than leviathan is but it's really interesting in its own way because it has so many different like faces of mastodon to show you yeah, I'd agree. I, I, so obviously this is their third album, and they um, uh, so they've gone from fire and water, and now gone to earth. And the first thing is I think the production uh, sells out really well because it doesn't sound muddy, but everything sounds a bit sort of lower, and the the, the bass and the drums especially are very high up in the mix, very like low to the ground, which I think really suits the theme. Uh, and again, it, like you said about the the vocals, Rob, I think it's interesting because uh, yeah, whereas Leviathan they had a few uh, clean vocals here and there, this one has entire songs with just clean singing. But it doesn't sound like, oh, oh, they also have just started singing clean now, have they? It, it really suits, like you said, the psychedelic aspects of the music. And they've even got, you know, Josh Homme from Queens of Stone Age turns up to sing a song with them. But it's not that the song then sounds like a, a normal rock song. It's still very weird and strange. And, and like you're saying, with that sort of earthiness to it, the way it opens up with The Wolf is Loose with that, like, blistery drum fill, like, reminds me of Remission in how it is just, like, it pummels you at the beginning. And you're like, wow, like, yeah, this feels really aggressive. But then as you go through the album, it explores so many different ideas, but in really quite contained packages, unlike, you know, where we last left off listening to Hearts Alive, which is this gigantic piece. You know, there's nothing quite like that on this album. But there is so many, like, fun psychedelic ideas. I really love, like, a lot of the weirdness they throw into this. Like, that bit... Like, there, there's a real moment where you knew they'd taken a turn with this album. When you get to track five, Circle of Side Scratch, it kicks off with one of the most, like, just headbangable, like, perfect mosh pit riffs the band has ever come up with. It felt like... From the first minute, you're like, this is the blood and thunder of the album. This is the single they're going to play over and over again. And then you get that bit where it just it all slows down and you get those heavily affected vocals that sound like they're being like filtered through like a warp in space-time. Like this dragged out like electronic squeal of a vocal over the riffs just getting slow and heavier. Like, oh no, fuck, this is not the commercial single. Like... By any means. Exactly. And then you, then you get to the breakdown at the end, which uh, changes signature every time it comes around. It sounds like it's constantly tripping over itself. You think, what the fuck's going on? And leading perfectly into the like, the instrumental madness of Blade Catcher, which uh, the, the namesake is perfect of this being this kind of quite showy but impressive technical display. And I think, like, with some other parts of it, you can begin to see the transition to what, you know, will be Crack the Sky next with these long, like, interlocking melodies. Um, like, on the beginning of Sleeping Giant, you just have, like, these huge lead guitars which, like, carry so much of it. Um, and similarly with the production, it feels really natural. You know, um, it doesn't feel like this, like, thing that's furious and breaking down your door like remission. It has this much more natural feeling to it. 
Um, and you can see those really emotive leads, like telling a story just through the lead guitar, which you'll like see as well on Crack the Sky. Like that is now beginning to become a staple of some of the parts of their sound. There's also some uh, interesting guest performances on this. So we mentioned like this is like the increase in their like meteoric rise of success. Like Scott Kelly's obviously back because he's on all of them. But we have Josh Homme of Queens of Stone Age who, what, 2006, yeah, Queens of Stone Age were already huge at this point. And we also have uh, Cedric and Aisha Owens of um, the Mars Volta uh, lending lending some stuff to, like, the closing of the album. Um, yeah, which, again, like, it's interesting you got those choices of, between Cedric and Josh, like, those are, like, very clean, high-pitched singers, like... They, they, they have voices which fit with Mastodon sound, but I don't know that I could place them anywhere in remission. Yeah, exactly. It shows where they come where their voices suddenly became appropriate for their style of music. And, and Colony of Birchman, the song which we have Josh Homme on, which is one of my favourite Mastodon songs, uh, they actually, like, showing where Mastodon have come at this point, they were live on Conan O'Brien, the American talk show in 2006, playing Colony of Birchman. And, like, watching that back, it's so weird to see Mastodon there. Like, particularly, you know, this is 2006. Like, Blood Mountain is still a fucking aggressive album in a lot of places. But then they're playing this song which could be, like, you know, a slightly heavier version of Queen of the Stone Age in some places. It's it's really weird how they manage to break into the mainstream while still having songs like The Wolf is Loose, like, opening this album. It's crazy. Yeah, it's going to be said this album still has a pretty intense, uh, like, intro. Colony of Birchman is a weird one. I don't know, like, I like it. I think it's a great song, but it is one at this point in time. I think I've always had that thing of going, like, I enjoyed this, but I'm not sure this should be a Mastodon song almost. It's because it's quite straightforward and it's not very heavy, but it's, it's a very good, straightforward, not very heavy song. Yeah, and I guess the other thing that just has to be remarked on this album is Scott Kelly's scream on Crystal Skull is, again, one of those bits of vocal performance that in like the last 10 or 20 years, like that's one of the best things I've ever heard. Uh, and Mastodon just, they just seem to get these things where they just have these moments of vocals that are just incredible. I'm going to add my one criticism of this album because of these, of these early four, like you, you've probably already got the impression we're going to be a bit sycophantic. We, we do really like those. There's going to be some more nuanced criticism coming in the second half. The criticism I got to lay at Blood Mountain is, I think, personally, it's a front-loaded album. I, I think the first six tracks are, like, near perfection for them, and then the ideas get more patchy in the the second six. Like, it's not terrible. Like, it's a perfectly... Like, it doesn't make me turn off the album by any extent, but... I think it's front-loaded. Uh, how, how do you uh, I, I would actually agree. I think around um, Hunters of the Sky and Hand of Stone, I think it does sag in quality a little bit. But I do think that by uh, the last two songs, um, Siberian Divide and Pendulous Skin, again, doing a thing where they kind of have a finale song and then an epilogue, I think by that point it's got back on top again. Yeah, I, I, th- I think I'd agree. Like, to open up with The Wolf is Loose, Crystal Skull and Sleeping Giant is just like, holy shit, that's a strong opening to an album. And, you know, like, with an album that is 12 tracks, like, that is... It's really hard with short songs to keep up that level. Um, I I would say, yeah, I think Hunters of the Sky and Hand of Stones just been like, it's kind of cool. Um, but it's not living up to anywhere near what we had at the beginning. I do really like this mortal soil though. 
Um, like, and again, coming into Siberian Divide, a pendulous skin are really cool. So I do think it it picks up a little bit towards the end. It's got that sort of like three quarters bit where it just like it struggles a little bit to keep throwing new things at you and to keep you engaged because of the supreme quality of what came before. Also, I, I hate bands that do the fucking 20 minute long song where it's all silence and then just like goofy at the end. There's a drunk voicemail album, from Josh Homme. Which in this case... <laughs> Drunk voicemail from Josh Homme. And and they put, like, what is it, like, 19 minutes of silence or something ridiculous? Yeah, that's obnoxious. I'm never going to get to that on my own CD player. Like, well, back in the day, this was listening to it, pressing fast forward the CD player and thinking, <laughs> what the fuck's at the end of this? That was not worth it. <laughs> I've held down the, the fast forward button for about a minute to do that. Yeah, I mean, so, so Josh Homme is, is my absolute favourite musician. So in a kind of fanboy way, I do really like the fact that he gets to close the album off. Although I do think it takes away from the kind of mythology of the album a bit. You kind of have this like big ethereal closer and then just something really silly after 20 minutes of silence. Yeah, that's quite a good point as well, actually. It, it's that kind of... Because they're a band, they never have band photos in their, their lyric booklets. Like the whole thing is always this very artistic endeavour. To have something so goofy in the runtime of the album, you're like, guys, like, this is too silly. Because even Remission does the, um, uh, it has a hidden track at the end, or I think there's two or three minutes of silence after Elephant Man, and then there's just a minute or so of static noise, but even then that's like, the static noise is kind of mysterious and lacks context and add, kind of adds to the weirdness a bit. It was just, you know, Josh Homme drunkenly saying some words takes it away from it a bit, I think. It also, I think, ends up meaning that this album like whenever i think about it i think of it as a mammoth album i mean it does end up at 67 minutes but so much of that is nothing but for some reason like my brain thinks that this album is gigantic when really it's not much bigger than most of the stuff that comes before it but something about that i'm just like you've wasted space like when you could have had something that would have been so tight and even more to the point, which is one of the things that's so great about Leviathan. I think this was a reasonable follow-up to a, to an album that was obviously... They, they were never going to top Leviathan with this, I don't think. And they, they did the smart thing of taking a slight direction change, trying to find an ever-slightly so new sound. And honestly, I remember it being well-received at the time. Like... No idea if that's like sort of a rose-tinted memory of it, but I, I feel they deserved sort of praise for forging new ground and trying something different, even if, yeah, there was a Yeah, and I mean, quality. a lot of the songs on this are still like Mastodon live staples. You know, like, there's still, even if you think that the album as a whole doesn't quite hold up in its consistency compared to the previous ones, like, there's songs on this that are still like fucking killer and like up there as some of Mastodon's best. So it still is one of those ones that's really up there. I also think this album does suffer a little bit from uh, So Far, So Good, So What syndrome, being sandwiched in the middle of two absolute classics.
I don't think there's there's anything particularly like sort of noteworthy between Blood Mountain and Crap the Sky. So let's jump on three years to, and this will be the album we close this half of the show with because I feel there's a good middle point as Crap the Sky happens there. The band take a very big change in direction. There's a lot of stuff that happens later. So yeah, we'll we'll finish off with with this one. So Crap the Sky, yet again for me, you know, I had really enjoyed Blood Mountain. I, by this point in time, I think I've got my head around Remission. Like, I was deep into, like, the fandom of this band. So I was properly excited for um, Crack the Sky when it came out. And I remember sort of getting it, like, a day or two after um, its first release and not having heard any reviews, not knowing anything about it, and without really looking in any detail, just putting it in the CD player and being absolutely blown away by Oblivion, which starts off with one of the first voices you hear is Brandela singing clean in a much higher voice than you've ever heard before. And I remember my initial thought being, oh, fuck, they learned to sing. Which <laughs> <laughs> is maybe, maybe harsh on uh, Troy and Brent, but like... There was suddenly there was suddenly this heavy metal like like proper old school. You were talking like early eighties heavy metal voice in play, and that informed like a lot of what was going on in this album because this album took a lot of those prog ideas of Blood Mountain and then like dragged them out into longer pieces. There's only seven songs in this album versus the previous twelve, and like even the opener Oblivion, it's almost six minutes long, but it was the lead single of the album. Um, yeah, they, they they were clearly forging a path towards the more progressive. So you, you say this is your start point for the band, Finn. Yeah, so like I said, I was actually with Rob uh, a few years ago when we were at uni together. I think I just saw the album cover and I thought, God, that it's, again, we're talking about you know Paul Romano doing an excellent job. I think the album cover just really struck me. I thought, God, that looks really interesting. And I think, Rob, you said, yeah, yeah, check these guys out. They're very good. So yeah, straight away with this album, like you said, straight from Oblivion, you think... This, it just, there's, there's so much going on. There's so many layers to the sounds. Especially, obviously, at that point, I didn't know that they'd only had two vocalists prior. But Oblivion immediately goes from verse, Bran singing, pre-chorus, Troy, chorus, Brent. And you're thinking, God, there's, you're just absolutely pummeled with ideas, but not in a chaotic way. It just sounds very considered and stable. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the bridging out of their vocal talents was really great because, like... Th- looking at oblivion as like a case study of it like you've got these bits where bran is like holding on while there's this quite like like kind of deceptively heavy groove underneath and then it's got these like sort of really quite sad bits where you've got brent coming in and putting a bit of like a southern bluesy twang on it um and then you get like different vocalists doubling up on lines later on in it and when they get this right live it sounds fucking amazing like when they get the, the those vocal lines um and, and the sort of like, and now I'm lost, doubling that up at the same time. It sounds incredible. Like, they get this huge emotional range out of the vocals. Um, but then, as Phil's saying, like, the like sort of progressive ideas and the music that's underneath this is, like, really quite hard to dig into. But it's really good. Like, it can be quite hard to get hold of individual riffs sometimes. But there's loads of cool stuff going on underneath. There's so many sort of like beautiful, interesting melodic ideas in this, um, particularly in two of the more like extended tracks, the Tsar and the the Close of the Last Baron. We get so many amazing moments of, as Rob says, like bits where you can't quite say what happened, but you're like, I, I just know I was really engaged for a couple of minutes there. Like something really hit me. Although there is still like just traditional Mastodon doing a great like 
solid metal song in their own style, like Divinations is the obvious kind of standout for that, complete with uh, Brent's ridiculous banjo solo in the middle. <laughs> and songs like Quintessence have got these like really heavy, groovy riffs in them. I remember the first time, I, I listened to this I think when I was 14, and like I was getting into like death metal and stuff like that, but I hadn't heard like metal that was this progressive and weird. And I remember like the bit in Quintessence with the big heavy groovy riff being like the one bit where I'm like, okay, I get that. I understand it. I know how it works. And then like spending ages like unpicking how I felt about the rest of it because it was such a like sort of transcendental experience that I couldn't quite unpick what I felt about it and why I liked it so much. Um, but then going back and just looking at some of the like really efficient songwriting on this, like the beginning of The Last Baron, which is an epic song, the beginning is so quick and to the point. You know, it doesn't do a Pink Floyd and spend like 20 minutes building up. Like it just gets you into it right away and hits you with the big vocal hook, which is like the thing that drives a lot of this song. Um, and it just does that so quickly. And I'm astounded by that for a song, which is a massive epic to just build like do a really good build but do it really quickly and really efficiently and it's some amazing songwriting yes i mean uh, i'm sure yeah, anyone who's vaguely familiar with the band will know the um, the subject matter of this album and why it's uh, sky spelt with an e is because uh, basically it's broadly about um so when Braun was a teenager his sister died by suicide and his sister was called sky so you know the concept of the album is is you know sort of very typical Macedonian so astral projection and, and time travel and czarist russia and things uh, broadly the album is all basically about uh, Braun coming to terms with his grief over having lost his sister i think that that kind of sense of sadness and loss is so present throughout the whole album so even things like um so obviously scott kelly uh, back again um does some vocals on the title track and apparently before he recorded his vocals for it he um they actually had a phone conversation with bronze mum just said oh can you, you know, can you tell me a bit about sky what she was like then we recorded his vocals had a picture of her in the booth i think it just and that that's reflecting the music just how much kind of love and, and genuine feeling is poured into this even from the from the guest musicians really trying to channel something into this amazing work of art and having Brand's voice be such a central part like the introduction and such a central part of this album when he starts doing all those clean vocals is like really really beautiful from that perspective of you know ultimately like Mazzon are telling this story but the figurehead of it is Bran and it's about some of his experiences Although um, the story I heard was uh, like Bran was very much forced into vocals because yeah. Troy <laughs> had a bit of a tantrum. Was just like, I'm not doing all the vocals. You guys have to do some work. I've I've seen that um, like interviews with Bran where he was sort of like, yeah, and all the other guys told me that I needed to do vocals now. <laughs> Which we will get to later. There is some knock on effects of that, but yeah, it, it was a really nice addition because it, it gave this album a more kind of melodic edge. I know there's there was fans at the time that took issue with it because. It is definitely not as heavy an album as any of the free following. I mean, Mastodon have been on quite a, like, you know, traceable arc of they have got less heavy with each successive album. Uh, and this one, they they very much leaned into territories of prog rock. There's full, like, couple of minute long sections of this album that definitely are just straight prog rock. Although the thing that actually separates this lot, thinking 2009 and kind of what the particularly the metal landscape was that kind of separates this album from a lot of those kind of progressive bands is um for me it's it's Brent Hines's leads because a lot of those progressive bands they would be these note perfect like you know the these dream theater style like this hyper practiced true perfection shredding whereas Brent uh you've mentioned before Finn like um he improvises all his leads in studio 
Like, he just, he'll turn up, there's a gap for a solo, he'll play 20 and choose the best. And that kind of energy, and because this album has more solos than the band had ever had before, completely closing on this massive long guitar solo section, that slightly jammed, bluesy energy is something they definitely take on to the rest of their career after this point. But it does give it that edge of being different to all their contemporaries in the genre. He's a, he's such an emotional player as well. Like I think bluesy is exactly the right word. Like... Like we hear on Blood Mountain, you get those bits where you can feel the emotion of a story just through those leads. They can carry something just as effectively as the vocals do, and if not better at some points. And having that, like, you've got this complicated stuff going on, but it never feels very complicated. It feels really emotional and expansive. Um, And, yeah, like, way broader than any of the previous albums in terms of its sort of emotional range and its feeling. And that feels kind kind of fitting that this is the album of air like it's huge and all-encompassing and covers so much ground and each of the individual members does so much towards that and like brent's a great example of that through lead guitar the other thing i think it's really interesting is like obviously this is the yeah like you just said rob the uh, the fourth album in the sort of elements uh is it quadrilogy uh, i guess you'd call it uh, but interesting. So on, on the previous three albums, above the logo, there's been a symbol which uh, shows what the. So obviously there's been a fire symbol for remission, etc. On this album, it's got an air symbol, but it also incorporates the three symbols from the other albums. So I think the band kind of knew that this was the culmination of everything, and something was going to change after this. I think you know the Last Baron, especially, does have a very very final feeling about it, broader than just within the album itself. Something I actually do want to say, like I wanted you to get in there, but I don't want to say in contrast to Rob. I'm not always sure about Brent's. Um improvise leads i think very like i think it's some songs maybe not on this album so much but some songs i think there's sort of issues there but i kind of love that that's included in a prog band like because his leads are sometimes messy and flawed and that's what like really struck me as weird at this point in time because i think this was a bit before band like people started getting really sick of that kind of really tooled up kind of sound you got from a lot of modern bands trying to be technical that like studio precision like making everything perfectly on the beat like his leads clearly aren't that there's like there's not so much bum notes there's also there but there is imperfections in it if you know what i mean but i'm not sure i always love it for the band but for this particular album i think it really works yeah it's, it's spontaneous and real and it matches you know like at the end of the day, the really serious sort of subject matter of this album, like, it's not perfect and pretty. Like, parts of it even sound a bit ugly, but there is beauty in that approach to just putting things out there rather than obsessively, you know, going note perfect. Exactly. I said, I think it's about the expression, not about the playing. Yeah, that's, that's a really good way of putting it, Finn. We should also say as well, Finn's been bringing up the, uh, the symbols on the album covers a lot. To, to prove how much of a fan Finn is, he actually has like down one arm tattooed the four, the four symbols. Um, yeah, well, I'll have to share a picture of it with the episode. But yeah, so the Finn's a, a dedicated follower of this band, and that might get more divisive in the next episode. But so to sort of close up thoughts on Crack the Sky for me, I I will always go back and forth debating this. Of I've always felt this was like a real creative peak for the band. I don't know if it's strictly my favourite album. I think if I'm being truly honest, I think Leviathan might just take that, like, that slightly more um, grounded production. 
does give it a kind of like a, a level of memorability more so than this this conceptually is completely relevant but it does have that more open sound to it, which means some parts wash over you and just like leave you with an emotion rather than going like oh yeah i know exactly what happened there and i i think maybe that plays into license favor as being the slightly stronger album i don't know where do you guys stand on like this this run of four well, yeah, it's like you're just saying, I think, I mean, even bands that I love, I think bands very, very rarely make a perfect album. I think Masson made two with um, Leviathan and Crack the Sky. Uh, and like I said, I, I think the difference is Leviathan is, because it's much more metal, it's much more active. So it's something you're listening to and it'll be building your adrenaline. Whereas like you said, because this is a lot more, it's a lot more contemplative. So it's, I think, I, I couldn't tell you which one I think is better. I think they are just very different. I would, I, I, in a sense, like, I think these four albums are kind of incomplete without each other. Like, they're, at least in my experience of them, they're so interconnected in a way that it's hard to imagine it. But I think I come down on the side of Crack the Sky just about edging it out for me. There's something about its composition and its songwriting and the overall massive emotional journey of it, which strikes a chord, which, while Leviathan, I think, is, again, fucking incredible... Crack the Sky can just elicit that emotional response, which Leviathan just can't reach. Um, but again, both incredible albums. Yeah, so I, I think at least there is the agreement we all really love this. And if for some reason you've never given Crack the Sky time, honestly, if, like all these, I think if you're if you're someone who enjoys maybe later Masson hasn't gone back, definitely listening to these first four is well worth a go. But I think also, like, there's a lot of older stuff like you may have missed that we've covered in this episode of be well worth delving into. That um, nine-song demo, if you just Google Master on nine-song demo, so worth checking it out if you've, you've never gone back that far. And stuff like Today's the Day, Lethargy, um, Social Infestation are all well worth a listen. And even if you can't get physical copies of most of the stuff, like, it's all up on YouTube. A couple of them are up on Bandcamp. Um, they're, they're pretty easy to find at least a version to listen to, if not necessarily buy. Um, we're we're going to split this episode in half here because I don't want to do like a four hour long one. I think two halves makes sense. And I, I think there's a very good reason to split uh, cover of his Mastodon and related side projects at this point. Yeah, I think I think it's just like worth reflecting on this point of like the change in Macedon sounds that we've heard. Like if you listen from if you just take the four albums from Remission through to Crack the Sky, like the changes in a sense feel kind of natural. You know, there's a constant progression and through line that you can see through all of this. But if you reflect from Crack the Sky back to the nine song demo, the change is like unimaginable. Like if you were to listen to the two next to each other, you you just have no idea. This is not the same band. You know, like this is completely different set of people and it's just really interesting to see that change that has felt so natural through this series of four albums but is so dramatic when you zoom out well yeah just the, again like rob's saying i think these these four albums are just again it makes sense with the whole uh, elements theme and everything they just feel the four of them feel very complete with each other and I, yeah like I, said, I think my two absolute two favorite maston songs you know uncoincidentally are hearts alive and the last baron which happen to be the two 13 minute ones from their two absolute classics I'm with you on this. Uh, those two, uh, they mean a lot to me. And I remember both me and you had that amazing reaction when we saw them in, like, what, 2016? When uh, they, they played... 2017, I think, yeah, in, uh, sorry, in the, Wales. Yeah, when, when they opened uh, they opened the set with The Last Baron, you're like, what the fuck are they playing this first? That's amazing. <laughs> my my favourite memory of that gig was seeing them... Uh, so they opened with The Last Baron, I think, for the entire 13 minutes. You'd look around and everyone was just 
you know, awestruck watching them, them fucking play this amazing song. And as soon as the next song kicked in, which I can't remember what it was now, that's when the mosh pit started, everyone starts going crazy. I think everyone just wanted to appreciate The Last Baron visually before losing themselves. So, um, yeah, like, I think that sort of brings us to a close on that era of Mastodon. As you can tell, like, we're people who, you know, as big as this band got, will happily defend where they got to. I mean... Yeah, without question or anything like this. Yes, they are overrated because they are rated that highly, but overrated is not the same as um, not good. Uh, like, so get in touch if, if you're if you're a fan of Mastodon and you you've got your own take on these albums. Um, we'll have another episode coming out in two weeks. We're just going to sit here and keep recording it, so I'll keep the sign off short. Um, yeah, if you want to get in touch, uh, hit us up. Um, at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook, or Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com. If, yeah, you want to leave us your thoughts on this. And I want to say, I know with the Roadrunner episode and this, I've gone really mainstream. Don't worry, I've got one in the pipeline for the next one that gets really fucking obscure. <laughs> so, so I'll cover everyone. <laughs> but yeah, uh, thanks a lot for, for, for joining us. Um, and yeah, essentially... We'll be we'll be out with the second part of Mastodon's career and all the related like side projects that follow as well. Uh, as I say, we're recording it now, but we'll be out with that in two weeks. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Bye.